Welcome to the British Chamber of Commerce Singapore's podcast channel. We're excited to bring you season three of new episodes featuring in-depth content across Singapore, ASEAN and the United Kingdom. We've had some extraordinary guests on our channel, including Formula One's Claire Williams. I'm a firm believer that any great team, any successful team has a great culture flowing through it. You aren't successful if you don't. So we put a lot of work into this. Renowned mountaineer Kenton Cool. That 2019 there with a client, a big storm came in and literally destroyed Camp 2. And I've got some video footage of Sherpas like trying to hold on to the tent fabric as it blows away. And the Royal Navy's Commodore Steve Morehouse, commander of the UK Carrier Strike Group. The squadron of F-35 aircraft we have on board is the Royal Air Force squadron. And, and the personnel there are drawn from both the Navy and the Air Force. So it's a what better way of, of showing just the efficiency and the joined up nature that we now have. And distinguished Sky News anchor, Jeremy Thompson. We had two little vans with satellite links and we, le- we leapfrogged up the road to Pristina, the capital, uh, throughout that first day with non-stop coverage from basically inside a war zone. We also sit down with the likes of TikTok, Twitch and Twitter and continue to bring you conversations around business and trade, leadership and people, sustainability, sports and arts and much, much more. Thank you, as always, for your support and we hope you enjoy this podcast. Hello everyone, my name is Oriana Bryan, your host and sustainability lead at Mullen Lowe, the creative agency. We're here today for the second podcast of the Journey to Sustainable Finance series on behalf of the British Chamber of Commerce Sustainability Committee. Today we're going to hear from the wonderful V. Nguyen, Principal Strategist in Sustainable Finance at Forum for the Future, about her journey to where she is today what got her interested, what is happening today that she predicted might happen a decade ago, and what, in her opinion, needs to be prioritized by business and governments. V is here today because of the unique position she holds as an agent of change within the ASEAN and finance system. So, welcome V. Thank you. Thanks, Ariana. Pleasure to be here. To start us off, I'd like to hear about your story and your call to leadership. So, you know, what drew you to the world of sustainable finance? Was there a specific moment when you knew that the role of finance was essential in transforming our our systems? Yeah, it's such a great question because um, when I think and reflect back, there is usually a moment, right? turning point. But to be honest, I think I was always a reluctant banker. You know, I was in banking for nearly two decades, but um, the way that I was brought up and the way that I guess my family viewed money and, and what it could and couldn't do, um, I was always a reluctant banker. I had no intention of going to banking. <laughs> but the first, so I always thought of money, you know, in, in doing good was always philanthropic. It was charity. But there was always this sense of that, that this, that's not sustainable in the long run. You're highly dependent on someone else's giving. That's um, there's some limitations to that. So I think I was working for a bank um, in my 20s. I started out in banking, and there was a point where I I spent two years at a, um, a firm called Challenger Financial Group, and they basically look at investment trusts um, and funds. 
they're an annuity business, but at the time they had this very small little fund that was their responsible investment fund. And I think that was the first time that I ever started to even think about the fact that capital could be used for good. That you could invest in something, expect a return, and it was a viable, it was accountable, you know, um, yeah, and that was it was available in the capital markets. And fast forward about another decade, I ended up um, as a trader of all things in the middle of a financial crisis working for a Singapore bank in Indonesia. <laughs> and wow. that wasn't that wasn't my you know my goal in life. I somehow managed to get there. I actually did enjoy it in many, many ways, but it's extremely stressful, especially in the middle of a global financial crisis, sitting on a trading desk. But I do recall a friend of mine, she was working as in marketing for Impact Exchange. And at the time, it was a fairly new uh, new thing that had been set up here, Shijok IAX. And she invited me to come, and I can't even remember why me, but she, she invited me to come to an um, Impact Forum that they were holding. And I remember Judith, uh, Rodent was presenting and at the time she was the president of um, PenU and um, she had come out to do this uh, you know this talk for them and then present about impact impact investing and it was such a concept and it kind of like triggered back this memory of back in challenger days you know that you could money was being invested for good with returns um, and that that were fair and it was this community of people I didn't even know existed within Asia, you know, and I felt like a complete foreigner amongst them as a prop trader. <laughs> and um, I just remember seeing Judith walk down with her entourage, and if you've ever met her or seen her, she's of quite a small stature, and she had like all these interns and analysts flocking around, and everyone wanted to talk to her, and I thought, oh my God, that's power. <laughs> that's like, that's walking power. But aside from that, what they were talking about, that made me really think, and you know, being in the midst of the financial markets at the time, um, uh, in the stock market, and seeing like the kind of devastation that was being created from what we thought was an efficient market that connected everyone globally, had such huge implications and proved itself ineffective in many ways. So I just kept on thinking, there must, be, you know, that impact investing that, that's got to be something here. Now, what can you can you imagine what we can do if we can scale that up? Because back at then, and I still believe, still at this time, moment in time, it is still relatively niche. Now, the concept of ESG has crept into that mm. and sustainable investing, but true impact is still relatively a, a niche area. But that that's what I remember. It was like Judith walking, <laughs> you know, and, and there was a community of people who were really doing it, trying to put the money where they and on the ground within Asia, looking at very different projects and hoping that one day, um, and thinking through all this time, that how, how does that scale up into the mass market instead of remaining project base you know, um, or investment fund base? How do we really bring this to the, the wider market? We do move capital where it needs to go. Yeah, we can create social and ecological change. Yeah. So, yeah, that, that's pretty much my journey. A reluctant banker who found impact investing. Still hasn't quite got there yet, though. <laughs> yeah, and I, I like that um, term, the reluctant banker. And uh, it makes me think of uh, the question, um, you know, do you think that finance professionals recognize their agency to change our economic systems? Because you did, 
And so what parts of you do you think uh, could other people, other finance professionals could see and grasp hold of and then say, actually, I can do this as well? I think it takes a little bit of a leap of faith that you, you really believe in it. I mean, it's not always a, any transition is not an easy one, whether it's on a personal level or like what we're doing now with the energy transition, you know, the global scales or decarbonisation, all these things, right? Yeah. There, are mal- there are multiple challenges. And it takes a, there's a leap of faith that's involved, but there's a bit of courage, quite a bit of courage involved too, because you, a lot of the time, especially, I mean, I'm not someone that's been in it for decades, right? The people who started really, truly believed in this and started this journey and, and advocating for this decades ago, like, the, you know, the, 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 at the vanguard of it. They, that takes a lot of courage because you're going against the grain, you're having to justify a lot. You know, and, and I think within finance, a lot of the data may not have been around. So you're trying to get someone's buy-in without having necessarily the proof already there. Um, that's quite difficult. And I think what I don't, to answer your question, I think that not all finance professionals understand their agency or believe in it. I think it's very, but it's no different from any other industry. I mean, I have to say that we, we cop a lot in our industries, it's the GFC, <laughs> you know, for causing a lot of the woes of the world. But as individuals, I, I think that, you know, we're no different from any other industry. You do get caught in that wheel of, you know, this is what I do, this is my job. And you forget the bigger picture of like, well, what is the implications of your job? You are one part of a supply chain or a system, but what are the wider implications of what you do on a day-to-day basis and how that connects to what other people do in the wider system itself, right? So we have agency, whether we believe in it or not, it varies. Um, I think that we should support, though, a lot of the financial professionals, you know, to cultivate the capability, the capacity within the industry to address a lot of these issues. Mm. And for them not to have to feel that, you know, you're fighting two battles. One within your own industry, mm. that why, why do you believe in this and to justify it? And then one outside of your industry to make us, you know, other people realize that we're not all bad <laughs> you know we do I mean there's so there's such intelligence you know um, and capability within yeah. the industry yeah. I mean if we could financially engineer products that structurally changed the world in a negative way surely we could also put it to good use right yeah. and I think that um, yeah I, I think the industry it needs to, to accept its own agency I like that. I, I like that sort of uh, the, the positive stance that you have. Reminds me also of you know finding those entrepreneurs yes. uh, within businesses who really want to create that change within their company. Um, an organization that I was introduced to a couple of years ago is the Finance Innovation Lab, who works with yes. entrepreneurs. Um, and I think, yeah, it's. It's an area that, uh, yeah, we need more uh, more people to recognize their agency to, to But if you think about like how how much um, you know ESG and sustainable sustainability professionals, how much that's grown, right? Just mm-hmm. job ads in the last five to ten years. Yeah, I mean that's growing, you know, because of commitments, etc., like that. But I mean, I have a lot of people coming, my ex peers, etc., who are talking about coming. I already have. Yeah. 
um, uh, interested in doing so and asking like, you know, how do I do this? You made the transition, what did you do? What do I do? How do I do it? And it doesn't have so, to be like overnight, it can be incremental, step, you know, step by step. Like, yeah. Transition yeah. doesn't have to be a complete revolution. Um, no. It's no. an evolution. Yeah. <laughs> I think, you know, if, if you really want, and I do believe that if you really want to do something, you will always find a way. There may be a cost involved and you have to be realistic about it. Just in any transition, there is a cost. Yeah. Um, but if you want to do it, you can. Yeah. Great, thank you. That's um, really interesting to hear about about your journey. Um, leading leading us into the second question today, and this goes back to your uh, history of working in in finance and sustainable finance. Um, what do you think is is happening in the field that you predicted would happen a decade ago, or even even further? Um, you mentioned you know twenty years as a as a reluctant banker, but <laughs> um, yeah. I think, you know, I always believe, like you talk about agency, right? And I think I've always believed in the agency of the individual. You know, a collective is just made up of a whole lot of individuals. And we do have power. And I always believe in the power of the consumer. And this is, you know, part of the movement towards sustainability in ESG has been largely driven by awareness um, that needs to be cultivated still, I think, education on, on uh, a lot of these issues is yeah. still required. But I think, uh, particularly within Asia, I've, I've seen the changes over the last you know, decade here in, in Singapore um, about the awareness like ecological damage and the impact of pollution and things like the circular economy. I mean, that, that kind of language was never floating around a decade ago, yeah. the concept of it. Maybe in academic terms, um, circles, but not on the wider public. Yeah, you see that a lot these days. There is not a day now that you pick up a paper where there's no article or mention of sustainability or climate change or emissions, um, pollution. Um, I mean, like COVID has brought that to the fore. Like those boundaries between our environment and us. Mm. Um, and I think consumers have picked up on this. And I think, yeah, I mean, like. They're the ones buying the products that the companies exist for in the first place, right? So the power of the consumer um, has really, you know, they realise their own agency in many ways. One thing that has surprised me, though, I think back in maybe it's my generation, the X Gen, well, there was a level of complacency, um, you know, an apathy about what can we do as an individual. I think I, I do remember a lot of that, you know, um, university when I first started working. That it was like let the system kind of take care of it and what's really been um, wonderfully motivating for me is seeing the younger generation come up and they're taking that into their own hands and they're going no we want to make the change we will go out and they're not afraid like this wonderful courage <laughs> yeah. you know just to say it as it is and take charge of their own future because they're going to inherit this earth you know and, and yeah and they're not waiting you know, they have the sense of urgency they feel very emotionally connected to it. Um, that was, that's been surprising, I have to say. I wasn't ready for that. Mm. But I always believe that, yeah, in finance, there was always going to be, it was the growing idea and the proliferation of the idea of capital for good. It was just a matter of when. So, you know, a lot of us waited for that for a really long time, and then it just kind of like, there was a tipping point, and it just, the momentum picked up, 
that's really come on. Now it's been, I think, you know, revised and questioned as it should. It was never going to be a smooth road. It was always going to be quite bumpy. And I think a lot of us, um, you know, if you've watched it, you, you expect it. I mean, like climate change, the, co the conversations around that, the first recognition of it as an issue has been around for a very long time. Yeah. It's nothing new. No. But the road to, you know, the road together is like, you know, it has to evolve in itself. It's, but what I question is like the, the sense of urgency within the industry, the wider public about how fast it needs to move. That's all. But it was always going to be a difficult and bumpy road. We're not... As human beings, we're not really rational. <laughs> if you watch the markets, you would see that, you know, Greenspan, I think it was, like in the 90s, uh, uh, coined the term irrational exuberance in reaction to the markets. You know, yeah. That's already we're really rational. You know, there's lots of theories out there, behavior economics points to a lot that we think we're rational, but we are actually quite biased in our decision making. Yeah. And we are very much focused on the short term versus the long term. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And and I mean talking about the the power of the consumer yeah. and this you know, this rise in people understanding the language and uh, being more I guess activist consumers in a yeah. sense as well. That's taken a long time to get here though. I mean, if, if Silent Spring was written in the 1960s mm. and it's just taken us to now to have the concepts like circular economy be yeah. uh, forefront in our, in our minds, what do you think is this next sort of shift that needs to happen to really get us, you know, people are talking about it, we now need to act. How do we get to that action we need to see? The targets, the goals, the... Yeah, it's interesting. Like, we, we responded to two levers, I think. One is like the carrot, and the other one's the stick. It's if you put the fear of God into us, and then we move. <laughs> or you give us something that is opportunistic, and we will make something of it. And you, I actually, we need both. You can't wait to present all opportunities to people and then put faith in that they will move towards that. There is some kind of, and this is where regulators and governments come in, right? You need to, to push them a little bit, put them in a little bit of a corner, make them a little a bit uncomfortable. A little bit of fear. A little bit of fear. <laughs> Always at least a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, but I mean, ideally, what is really sustainable, truly in the long term, is to say that it's good for them, mm. right? The carrot, I think, is always going to be better. In sense, in sense of like longevity and making that really sustainable, what they're the action sustainable. So they're motivated by those two things. And the future generations. Yes. I mean, you see a lot of people who aren't interested in sustainability, uh, although I think few fewer now, yeah. uh, and then they have children and suddenly become extremely interested in, well, wh what's my child's future going to be like? What world are they going to live in? Yeah, exactly. They have to be invested, right? They have to believe it is a shared future. Yeah. That one, there is a future. That they can't be apathetic because there is something to work towards. There is a hope at the end. Mm. And that it's they have agency in that. They can determine that. Mm. And that it's you know, it's worthwhile. 
So whether it be for your child, for yourself, for just, you know, because you love nature, whatever it is. And this is the thing, it's in the messaging, it's in the storytelling, it's in the narrative that makes people connect to this and feel that it really is their own. It's not that it belongs to somebody else, it's someone else's problem. And I think this is a something that we need to address globally, right? Between the global north, the global south, the developed worlds, developing nations, whatever, however you want to term it, that what we're facing now is a shared future that is at risk. So whatever the solution needs to be, we need to do it collectively. And not just that, well, it's not happening to me right now, you know, there's droughts or heat wave or whatever, so I shouldn't, why should I care now? Because by the time you care, it will be your problem. Yeah. Yeah, so that, that tipping point is coming. It's, I guess that's what the challenge is for us, is, is not just um, ensuring there's action, but there's action fast enough. Wonderful. And I guess, so leading into our final question for today, knowing what you know now and the challenges that the world faces, the choices that we must make at a global level, plus the urgency, and the hope that we can aspire to, what do you think governments and multinationals need to prioritize? So governments on one hand, multinationals or, or businesses uh, need, need to prioritize, and how do you think sustainable finance can make a substantial difference in this future world? I think that um, definitely like dialogue, much more dialogue. I mean, it is already happening, right? You have a lot of agencies being set up for collaboration, etc. especially across finance, the, the industry itself. Um, but it is a lot more that needs to be done and not just the talking of it, but then actual you know, steps. What are the next steps? And then to take those steps, to have the courage to take those steps. You know, I've, I really do truly believe that finance can be a catalyst for change versus remaining in the sphere of being a conduit for transactions only. You know, there's a shift in the way that you think about it. Um, and I think there's a, you know, there, there has to be more uniform policy across borders. Um, a coordination on policy, on taxonomy, and these things, which is, it is being done, as I'm saying it's not being done, but it needs to be done faster. And I think within an Asia context, because this is where we are, um, mm. that a lot of this, and this is what we talk a lot about at Forum, is a just transition. Mm. And that means you have to contextualise your solutions within the context of individual countries and the issues that they face. Asia is not homogenous at all, on, on every level. <laughs> So why would you think there's a one solution that fits all, kind of thing, right? So we have to put it into context because there's a lot of people who are at risk of being left behind in these transitions. And if you're not, I mean, like you look at the, the, the goal, why are we transitioning in the first place? If you're not doing it for people, who are you doing it for? So I think that, you know, like a, there's many, many challenges within Asia. Whatever solutions, whatever the cross-border or otherwise, they have to be contextualised within that, those specific countries to address specific problems. They have, you know, and to break it down to actual actionable steps that are realistic. Here's the other thing. 
everyone out there, multinationals and governments, and you know, having the NDCs and all these commitments that they put out there, right? But are they realistic? You know, I'm not sure. For some countries, they are, and they're just not doing anything. In others, I think it's not really plausible. So therefore, I mean, there's a certain level of, of, of accepting the reality I think, that we need to get to. Mm. And a lot of that, for a lot of countries, if you talk about um, energy transition, it's a lot, and you know, decarbonisation, which is um, the biggest focus right now yeah. for much of the world. It's about, you know, you won't talk about adaptation very much. We're trying to mitigate, and we should. We should continue on that path. But there's another thing that we no one wants to talk about, which is, you know, um, adapt. This, this new future, this new reality that we're walking into, um, what are the consequences for living with them? How do we help them to live within that in a, in a just way, an equitable way? Yeah, on multinationals, I, mean, <laughs> I think on the large part, they're, they're moving in the right direction. I think company, it depends, um, different regions, different countries, and multinationals are probably a bit further ahead because they've had to be, they've been pressured into it in many ways because they work across many jurisdictions. Well, yeah, that's what I was going to say. I mean, you, you spoke about uniform policy across yeah. borders and coordination. Multinationals have almost had to really do that, and and all, they could be a, a test case, really. Yeah, I mean, they can be really effective, right? Mm. They, I mean, they've laid the groundwork and the, you know, the, the infrastructure to be able to work across these multiple regions and mm. countries. Um, and then the private sector typically moves a lot faster than the public sector. Yeah. So I think, in general, the desire to go down this path is there, but there's still a lot of um, kind of sidestepping and not wanting to. There's one thing that no one also want to accept is that there's a cost. There's always going to be a cost. Yeah. Any change, there is always a cost. Someone has to bear the cost. This is where we're at. It's the question of who bears the cost. Yeah. We all do have to at some point, to some degree. Yeah. Um, and that's the debate out there. Is it the financial intermediaries? Is it government? Is it the consumer? Is it the companies? But well, it's just something we have to <laughs> we have to figure out, right? Yeah. Yeah. But no, they I absolutely do believe that multinationals also have a role. There's a lot of collaboration there, and they, I think, a lot of engagement is still required by them, with like civil society, you know, um, academia, and the working within government as well, and with each other, within the industry. And this, I think, you know, from a lot of our work, we've um, come to understand that a lot of industry, the fear is not the actual transactional cost of transitioning; it's the fear that your competitor. Is going to get ahead somehow and yeah. you bear the cost. Yeah, but yeah. if everybody, it's made very clear that everybody moves together, it's a cost to everyone, you reduce that fear mm. within sectors and within industries, right? So you remove some of the resistance. Those kind of things need to be addressed, the little nuances of how to get there, the steps that we need to take. Who's going to hold, hold people accountable? Regulators and government, I think, at the end of the day, and the consumer. You still, back to that yeah, consumer. Going back to that point. Yeah. yeah. You know, we still don't have to, you know, we choose where we put our dollar, where 
sales when we were yeah. money, especially in this time when we're going into economic contraction and there's less of it, you yeah. know, there's going to be less money flow. Um, we, we still have that. So, yeah, absolutely. Companies exist to fill a gap. There was an opportunity. Yeah, great. Great insights. Thank you. I think, uh, yeah, the, the fact that business is dynamic and, and flexible is, is uh, they can often act a lot faster than, than government can, but government and, and regulators are ultimately going to hold people accountable. So, And that's yeah. the thing, we, we as individuals also vote for those governments, right? Great. I mean, really excellent insights today. Um, Anything else, you know, wrapping up that you uh, want to mention? Perhaps some work from Forum or uh, on the Just Transition uh, or anything about your personal journey that... <laughs> How far do you want to go back? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that, like, you know, on a positive note, I really do believe the world is moving in the right direction. I think there's a lot more dialogue than people give credit to that's happening in the back mm -hmm. background. I think we face, it's, it's not an easy problem, it's a quite a complex, it's easy in one one sense. We know where we need to go. Yeah. Right? Hopefully everyone has bought into that. <laughs> <laughs> um, not easy in the sense that then if you break it down for each industry, countries, there are multiple levels of issues that need to be addressed. Yeah. But there is hope because I do believe a lot of them are being addressed. There's a lot of innovation, a lot of thinking around this, particularly in finance, innovative finance, that is coming through to try to solve a lot of these problems. Um, but, you know, as all things in all transitions, a lot of the time we start with a legacy system or mindset, way yeah. of thinking. Yeah. Because, and we're legacy. coming into uncharted territory now where we're like, we don't, it's unpredictable. What we need is, you know, to, to to create models and systems that are dynamic, that are responsive, no matter what comes. That's really quite tricky, right? But I mean, definitely, there's, there's the smarts are out there, especially within finance, for sure. Yeah. Um, we have the capability. We need to build up the capacity. We have to also, like, you know, if you talk about the financial industry, I think we need more professionals coming across mm -hmm. in that. It's happening, but I think, you know, um, yeah, we, we need people who are, are well-versed in this from both sides, the you know, sustainability side and also the financial, so yeah, that they can apply, help to apply it. Yeah. And that is, that is happening. It's growing. Um, I think it's only one way, hopefully. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so I'm quite positive. I think it's, it's, it's heading in the right direction. It's just a matter of time, and again, that's an emergency because the time is of the essence. We don't have luxury of it. That's the only thing. Yeah. yeah. Great. Thank you so much. And, and to our listeners, I hope the uh, conversation sparked something within you to create the change that you want to see. Uh, please join us for our next podcast uh, in uh, November, where I'll be talking to Eric Lim, who has a fascinating story about his journey from training as an accountant many years ago to now becoming the Chief Sustainability Officer at UOB. Thank you very much. Thank you for tuning into this episode of the British Chambers podcast. Before you go, don't forget to subscribe and why not leave us a rating and review on Spotify, Apple, Google, and the other podcast platforms. 
For more information, please visit our website at www.britcham.org.sg and tune in next time for a brand new episode.